From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. And just in time for Halloween, we bring you recipes for murder. It's the title of Karen Pierce's new cookbook, inspired by the work of Dame Agatha Christie, the master of the detective novel, and who, according to the author's website, has been outsold only by Shakespeare and the Bible. Everyone loves a whodunit, especially me. And Karen Pierce has a particular taste for the genre. In Recipes for Murder, she offers us a recipe for each of Christie's works. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How deeply rooted is your love of Agatha Christie? It goes way back. I was maybe 10 or 11 when I first discovered an Agatha Christie paperback on my grandmother's bedside table. And having finished read all the Trixie Beldons and all the Nancy Drews, I dove in and, um, you know, never really looked back. In my 20s, I started collecting them feverishly from secondhand bookstores. And they were just always my comfort. Like, if things had gone wrong, I'd get in the bathtub and read an Agatha Christie. Yeah, it's very comforting, despite it the really horror is. and violence in between. <laughs> um, what inspired you to research and write a recipe for each of her works? Well, the truth is, is that I was really looking for the Agatha Christie cookbook, and I couldn't find one. And I really don't know what gave me the chutzpah to say I could do it myself, but I just started writing. I wondered what it would look like. And eventually I came to the idea that it would really be about her books. It would be how she used food in the books and explain some of those really English things that most of us in the rest of the world don't know about or stuff that's really timely that is no longer done. So I just thought it would be great fun to look at it. And that's what I did. I started with the mysterious to ferret styles and went through each and every book. Christy herself is so often conflated with Miss Marple. Mm. And we we have this image of her being such a proper and sometimes prim woman. But she had this sort of love of cream that I think is so odd and quirky that it Mm -hmm. says a lot about her. Could you share this bizarre... This bizarre habit she had? Well, first, I would say that Christy herself was much more in tune with Ariadne Oliver than Miss Marple. Miss Marple was really based on Agatha's aunts and grandmothers. She was a pretty freewheeling young woman. I mean, she learned to surf. She was one of the first people standing up and surfing. But yeah, the cream. She comes by it honestly. She's from Devon, the land of cream tea, and probably some of the best cream in England is from Devon. So I guess as a young girl, she started drinking it in a cup, and it's called a cup of neat cream. Now, I guess she never really stopped because she doesn't, she never drank alcohol. And so any kind of a celebration, she'd have a cup of neat cream. So I don't think she had it every day, but that was her treat. (laughs) I love that so much. So on a dare from her sister, Christy wrote and published her first novel, The Mysterious Affair at Styles. She was 26 years old and had had a career as a nurse, which 
gave her an insight to medicine and poisons. When do we first start to see food figuring prominently in her work? Well, in that first one, The Mysterious Affair at Stalls, there's, they, they talk about going in and out for meals, but really coffee and cocoa are the only two that really star. But if you look at the second novel, The Secret Adversary, Tommy and Tuppence talk about food a lot. They're there. They're two young people. They're totally broke um, after the war. They can hardly scrape enough money to have tea and toast at their neighborhood cafe. And, you know, they reminisce about all the great foods they used to have back in the, you know, back in the day. Anyway, they get a job. Tuppence finds, you know, gets herself, I, I guess it's like 10 five-pound notes, which is a fortune. And they hot-footed over to the Savoy Hotel or the Ritz or whatever it is. And Tuppence cannot wait to order all her special foods. So that's really the beginning of Christy using food to set the time, set the tone, and really describe who these characters are. How does she use food as a device to advance plot and define characters like the infamous Hercule Poirot? He was what we would now call a foodie. Is there a book where his love of food and ability to cook comes to the foreground more than in others? Well, there's the the classic one where he actually teaches his hostess how to make an omelet. He has, in Mrs. McGinty's Dead, he's been um, dragged into a a murder. The the, the person's already been accused. Uh, One of his friends wants him to look into it. So he goes to this tiny town. He ends up staying in a guest house where they don't know how to keep a guest house. They have no idea what they're doing. And the food is atrocious. And Poirot can only hold his head in his hands in despair. But as he says by the end of the book, he has made friends with him. He's bought Maureen a cookery book so she can learn some new recipes. He's taught her how to make his omelet. And fast forward a bit to another book called Cat Among the Pigeons, And young Julia Upjohn says to him, oh, my aunt makes a smashing omelet. And it's the same woman. And of course, uh, Poirot says, well, then I have not lived in vain. (laughs) So great. (laughs) So let's talk about Halloween. Could you suggest a menu for a Halloween-themed dinner and the stories that inspired each course? Yes, we have the jack-o'-lantern deviled eggs, which is from the Halloween party mystery, which is known as a haunting in Venice these days. But in that mystery, there's actually um, a Halloween party for teenagers, and there's a buffet of sweet and savory things. And so I chose the deviled eggs. I I turned them into kind of little pumpkins and and decorated them so they look like jack-o'-lanterns. I love that. And then I thought, well, roast partridge. This is a September meal, Michaelmas. This is from one of the last stories, Nemesis, where she's reminiscing about her girlhood. So there's a lot of shooting of partridges in September and October in Devon. And they have a roast. And it just felt very fall, very, very Halloween, I think, to have a roast partridge. 
And then, of course, you have to have some potatoes. So I took that from, and then there were none, which um, my recipe is how to do the perfect boiled potato. And I think there's just something spooky about, and then there were none, no matter what you do. <laughs> A very spooky story. And then to top it off, we have another delicious death by cake. Christy was inspired that cake. She had it at friend at, at a friend's house. And that particular mystery is dedicated to those friends. Well, thank you so much, Karen. What a fun book. Well, thank you. That was Karen Pierce with some Halloween inspiration. Her book is Recipes for Murder, 66 Recipes that Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. We've got recipes for each of these Halloween dishes she talked about on our website. It's all at kcrw.com slash goodfood. And I know we're still in the spooky season, but Thanksgiving is around the corner. Don't let it creep up on you this year. Send me your questions. Are you in charge of a spread that needs to accommodate vegetarians, vegans, and omnivores? Or perhaps you're wondering how to reinvent your side dish game. This year, I'll be joined by cookbook author Nick Sharma, and together we will answer your questions and, of course, get you excited about what's possible in a Thanksgiving spread. You can email us at goodfood at kcrw.com or you can DM us on Instagram. We're at kcrwgoodfood. Coming up, it's back to the horror stories, and I wish I was talking about Halloween. Stay with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Good Food. Additives, preservatives, and artificial coloring in food are America's gateway drugs to overconsumption and obesity. In his book, Ultra Processed People, Professor Chris Van Tulikin offers himself to science as he explores the effects of ultra processed food and a marketplace where profit is the goal and purposeful addiction is part of the recipe. Hi, Chris. Hi, what an amazing introduction. I'm going to use some of that. Uh, to describe uh, the phenomenon of ultra-processed food in the future. How do you boil down the long scientific definition of ultra-processed foods? It's pretty straightforward. Anything that's wrapped in plastic that has an ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, xanthan gum, an emulsifier, a stabilizer, a humectant, high-fructose corn syrup, is very likely to be ultra-processed. And there are a couple of other good rules of thumb. If there is any health claim on the pack, low fat, high in fiber, vitamin enriched, supports weight loss, benefits your immune system. Any of that is likely to indicate a food that's ultra processed as well. Real food, broccoli, bananas, steak, almost never has a health claim. So interesting. It's such an oxymoron. (laughs) The logic is easy to understand. Once you understand the incentives within the food production system. So so writing my book, I spoke to a huge number of extremely kind, decent people who work within the food industry. And one of the purposes of ultra-processed food is to add value to waste products. I was looking at a protein bar the other day and it contained a thing called citrus fiber. Now, citrus fiber is just left over in the peel from making 
lemon juice, orange juice, grapefruit juice, or in the peel when, when things are canned. And so if you can, rather than throwing that away or scattering it on a field, if you can take that citrus fiber and make it edible and add it to a protein bar and call it citrus fiber, two words we associate with good health, then you've added enormous value to it. So a lot of ultra-processed food is about taking stuff that is more or less inedible and making it edible by flavoring it and emulsifying it and coloring it. So when did the use of artificial additives, preservatives, and coloring spike in food manufacturing? And, and was there immediate regulation of their use? So it was post-saccharin was the first additive developed in the late 19th century, became very popular in World War I. It was the first thing to be added um, it, you know, in large quantities to, to food. And it became very popular, particularly in the States, but all around the world. It was after World War I and World War II that ultra-processing really took off. And quite early on, Congress in the States realized in the 50s that a whole slew of new additives were being added to food and no one had really studied them. And so they passed a Food Additives Act in the late 50s, which was very robust and it empowered Congress not simply to consider the safety of one additive, but to look at the total uh, number of additives. So if a food product contains a safe amount of additive A, B, C, and D, in combination, they may no longer be safe. And, and so in the 50s, people were really taking this nuanced effect, but they built in this loophole because they didn't want to have to go and do safety trials on vinegar and table salt and olive oil and stuff that we've been adding to our food for centuries or even millennia. And so they built in this loophole about things that are generally recognized as safe. And unfortunately, that loophole created this gateway where now in, in the States, and I'm, I always feel self-conscious talking to American interviewers about this because it is, it is such an indictment of your food safety system that I, I would be very anxious eating any food with additives in the States. What is the case now is that there is no regulation of food additives. There's a sort of Potemkin regulation. There's what looks like regulation because there's the Food and Drug Administration. And they do go through a, a, um, a couple of billion dollars of performance of regulation. But in fact, if any company wants to add any additive to your food, provided scientists at the company agree that it is generally recognized as safe, then they can add it. We've seen so activist groups, uh, legal action and environmental groups like the Environmental Defense Fund have started exploring in detail a few cases. And we're seeing, for example, corn oil that is left over from the production of bioethanol um, is being added to food supply chains. And what the consumer will never know that the corn oil is not squeezed directly out of the corn cob. It is instead coming from a fermentation mash to which antibiotics and antifungals have been added. And it's been through very serious industrial processes normally, uh, you know, with no regard for human safety. And that's just one example. So by some estimates, there are as, as few as 5,000 or as many as 15,000 additives that are unknown to the Food and Drug Administration. Wow. Describe the personal experiment that you conducted on ultra-processed food consumption. What were the results? So I ate a diet of 80% ultra-processed food for a month, and 
I did this in partnership with my colleagues at University College in London, where I'm an academic. So we didn't, this wasn't supersized me. It wasn't a stunt for a book or a TV show. It was done to get pilot data for a very big study, which we're now running. And various newspaper articles have said, I sort of put my body on the line for science. And I, I really didn't. I, I ate a diet that is extremely normal for an American or a Canadian or a British teenager. 20% of people in the US and the UK eat 80% of their calories from ultra-processed food. Three things happened. I gained a huge amount of weight, 6.6 kilos, which means that in a year, I would have doubled my body weight. I'm, I'm around 80 kilos now. The second thing was we saw a huge increase in connectivity between the habit-forming areas at the back of the brain, the cerebellum, and the addiction reward ancient parts in the middle of the brain. And this was a set of MRI scans that we did under very close supervision with our National Neurology Hospital. This is a very robust result. And we have no knowledge of what is happening to the brains of children who eat this level of ultra-processed food from birth through to when they're fully developed in their, in their mid-20s. And the final thing that happened was that my response to a standard meal changed. So that at the beginning of, of a diet, when I drank a, a standard nutritional milkshake, the kind that we use in these research studies the whole time, I had a normal response in terms, terms of my hormones to fullness and hunger. At the end of the diet, when I drank the same standardized meal, my hunger hormones remain sky high. And this ability of the food to interrupt the way that we handle calorie intake is characteristic of ultra-processed food. And it's something lots of listeners are going to recognize that they sort of feel full or they know they've had enough and yet they are unable to stop eating. And the, the evidence that these foods are addictive is now very, very strong. We have, we have a lot of evidence. In terms of just pure enjoyment of eating and enjoyment of the meal, what was that like for you at the beginning and towards the end? So maybe in a way that actually that was the most important thing that happened to me. At the beginning of this diet, I was looking forward to it. I was going to go and eat all the cereals that I'd eaten as a kid. I was going to eat junk food every day for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I was really feeling I could I could sort of let myself go. I wasn't going to overeat, but I could eat what I wanted in a way that I normally sort of don't necessarily go to fast food restaurants for lunch as a, as a doctor. Midway through the diet, I spoke to a colleague in Brazil and we were, we were planning a, a research study about something else. And she just kept saying to me, it's not food, Chris. It's an industrially produced edible substance. And that night I sat down to a meal of, I think it was Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I could not eat the meal. I was disgusted. And the rest of the diet was very hard for me, actually. I wanted real food. And the gift I want to give to the reader of my book is the same thing that the, the quit smoking, the easy way to quit smoking book does, is by the end of the book, I hope that people won't just be more knowledgeable about this food, but they will be unable to eat it. Um, you're a doctor with the NHS. Do your patients know that you went through this experience and has it informed your ability to be able to convince them of eating more real food rather than veering towards ultra-processed? So I'm, it's a great question. I'm an infectious diseases specialist and I'd mainly treat patients with tropical infections or, or systemic infections. Most of my patients live in poverty. They're migrants, refugees, they have no addresses, they're homeless, and they are hugely impacted by diet. So the reason my patients get infection is because they're their diets are terrible. And we only really see infectious diseases in people who live in poverty. So they're often injecting drug users. 
I do talk with them a lot about what they should eat, but the conversation has a real edge to it because I can tell them to eat fresh, healthy food, go and you know, cook some steak, buy some apples. And they're like, we don't have a refrigerator. I can't keep anything. I can't cook things. I can't afford um, to batch cook a meal and freeze it. I don't own a freezer. And so in the UK, we have, much like the United States, huge levels of inequality. And one of the problems about discussing ultra-processed food is this is the food that people who are disadvantaged are forced to eat. So I'm speaking to you from Canada. I'm in a community where there's a large indigenous population who I know well, and many of them have now read my book. You know, I'm, I'm friends with them. They can't stop eating this food. It's the only food available to them. They can't afford to go and get fresh food. They're a, they're a really impoverished community. So there is a political edge to this where we're seeing, certainly in the UK, that the British government is resisting saying don't eat ultra-processed food because um, it's complicated as a government to say don't eat the only food you can afford because clearly people are going to um, take to the streets and go, well, we can't, why can't we afford the food that you're telling us to eat? I personally think that whatever political stripe you wear, the cheapest thing is to have a population that eats a healthy diet. It is so expensive in the States and in the UK to have childhood obesity and diabetes rates the way they are. Um, so it, it makes economic sense, it makes moral sense, and if you have any sense of social justice, then it's an imperative that real food is affordable and available. Part of the marketing of ultra-processed foods is to use recognizable ingredients, um, like you mentioned the um, citrus fiber. Are, mm. are there are there any redeeming nutrients in in these products? So that's such a good question because we have never been able, in in the entire history of nutrition, no one has ever extracted a vitamin, a molecule, a mineral, an element, an aspect of any whole food that has conferred a health benefit in healthy people. Whether it's lycopene from tomatoes, vitamin C from citrus fruit, fiber extracted from all bran, none of it seems to have any fish oil from fish, walnut oil from walnuts. And yet, tomatoes are healthy, citrus fruit is good for you, fish, oily fish are good for you, uh, walnuts are good for you. We're very, very certain about that. And so the thing that is hardest for people to understand is that food is a complex substance. It consists of a structural matrix. And when you eat an apple, you're not simply eating a long list of probably many thousands of ingredients. You're deconstructing them with your mouth. Your tongue and taste receptors interact with all the different molecules and prepare your body to receive the meal. You start becoming full even as you're chewing. And your liver will prepare to receive the small number of toxins that are present in all fruit, veg, and real food. Your kidneys will do the same. So real food is complex and the human body has evolved to eat it. And when you dismantle real food, like a soybean, and you turn it into a soy protein isolate and some soy oil and a bit of soy modified starch, your body hasn't evolved to handle any of them. And so the health claims made about individual ingredients are really nonsense. And if you are able to just eat real food, Michael Pollan had this insight in uh, the turn of the millennium. He said, you know, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. The problem with that is the political loading it comes with. It's not affordable for most people. The scientists who developed the ultra-processed food definition used pollen's idea 
to develop this work, to formalize it. We now have a decade of data showing that it's correct. And so we know that eating real food, whether it's a tomato or a piece of beef or a pork chop, is basically good for you. Um, and eating any extract of that really doesn't seem to have a health benefit. It is such an interesting book. Thank you so much, Chris. It's so nice speaking to you. Thank you for your lovely questions, which always they made me think harder than a lot of interviews do. Chris Van Tulliken is an associate professor at University College London and a practicing infectious diseases doctor. We've been discussing his book, Ultra-Processed People, The Science Behind Food That Isn't Food. Continuing our real-life Fright Fest, we turn our attention to everyone's favorite topic, food poisoning. The last time I spoke with personal injury attorney Bill Marler was 2009. When I reminded him of this, he said... Ah, must have been about diarrhea. So, (laughs) (laughs) nobody ever talks to me about anything else. The Seattle-based lawyer specializes in food poisoning cases, and he famously litigated the Jack in the Box E. coli outbreak in 1993, eventually settling for $15.6 million. 30 years later, he's still fighting to keep Americans safe from their restaurant order and supermarket shopping. Bill is one of the subjects in Netflix's documentary, Poisoned, The Dirty Truth About Your Food. Welcome to Good Food, Bill. Hello again. There is a refrain from federal officials that America has the best food safety record in the world, yet the timeline for recalls demonstrates a frightening consistency. What is your initial reaction when you hear those statements? Well, I think they're not very helpful. You know, when you consider that 48 million Americans get sick from a foodborne illness every year, 125,000 of them are hospitalized, and there's somewhere between three and 4,000 deaths. So saying that the food supply is the safest in the world really is kind of beside the point. We need to do better to make our food supply safer. As a refresher, could you give us just a brief explanation of the Jack in the Box case that you litigated? Yeah, so in uh, the fall of 1992, there was a cluster of E. coli cases that were unknown as to what the cause was because at the time, E. coli 015787, which is a nasty sugar toxin, toxin-producing E. coli, that was not a reportable disease in the United States in the fall of 1992. So there was this cluster of cases in the San Diego area about 40 of them, a child died, there were about a dozen kids with acute kidney failure, and they just went unnoticed because they were not a reportable disease. They ultimately were found to be linked to jack-in-the-box. But in the meantime, the meat that sickened those kids that was undercooked, that meat was shipped across the western United States, primarily to the state of Washington, and kids started getting sick in early to mid January, ultimately leading to nearly 700 people getting sick, four children dying, and about 75 children with acute kidney failure. So it ultimately was contaminated uh, meat that was allowed to be sold uh, to the consuming public, to restaurants and to consumers, and, you know, gross undercooking of the product because, uh, 
you know, the two minute cook time was more important than thoroughly cooking the hamburgers. That case ended up bringing about real change when mm-hmm. it comes to illness from beef. How did that happen? Yeah, and, and essentially what happened was before the Jack in the Box, a, a meat company could knowingly sell E. coli tainted meat to the public and not be harmed at all from it. Um, you know, public would be harmed, but the meat supplier could just knowingly do that. Um, afterwards, uh, Mike Taylor, who was brought in by the Clinton administration to run Food Safety Inspection Services, the arm of the USDA that watches over our meat supply. And Mike, to his credit, uh, deemed uh, E. coli 0157H7 adulterant in ground beef, and that meant that it could not be sold to the public. That was a real game changer. Um, the meat industry went absolutely nuts. Um, you know, the world was collapsing. The hamburger was going to cost a billion dollars a pound. Nobody, you know, blah, 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 blah. But eventually, over years of litigation between the beef industry and the government and me suing the beef industry, the industry eventually found ways to make hamburger safer. And where the work that I did in the late 90s, early 2000s, 95% of it was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. Today, that's zero. And other than my accountant maybe being bothered by that, it is, you know, I think a real testament to industry, government, and consumers actually, you know, pulling on the oar in the same direction uh, and solving a problem. It's no longer the beef in the hamburger that will make you sick. It's the lettuce, tomato, and onion, says the CEO of a laboratory that tests for foodborne bacteria in the documentary. When did E. coli scares move from beef to produce like romaine and spinach? So it really was um, a phenomenon that really started in the early 2000s. About the time that I started to see E. coli cases linked to hamburger start to uh, disappear, uh, E. coli cases linked to leafy greens and other fresh fruits and vegetables started popping up. And the reason why we see it now is is that E. coli 0157H7, which is a fecal bacteria found in the guts of cows, that bacteria didn't go away. The processing of those animals got better. So the you know, the meat supply was not getting tainted by this fecal pathogen. But what was happening is, is this fecal pathogen is getting into the environment. So right now, E. coli 0157 has become a real problem in the environment. So where you see these outbreaks occurring now is in areas where there's cattle, where there's cattle feedlots, where there's dairy you know, facilities. And what is happening is as lettuce, especially mass-produced bag, triple washed, chopped up, shipped across the country lettuce has become more and more popular. They've pushed into growing areas that are closer and closer to these, you know, giant feedlots. And not surprisingly, the fields get contaminated, the water gets contaminated, and we have significant outbreaks. I mean, we're not talking just handfuls of small outbreaks. We're talking, you know, hundreds of people sick, dozens of people dead, you know, hundreds with uh, 
long-term kidney problems. E. coli 0157 has become, you know, an environmental problem, um, not so much a meat problem anymore. How many federal agencies are tasked with food safety regulation and oversight? There's really two main ones, but then it devolves into about 13, 14, 15 other ones. Uh, The main two regulatory bodies is the uh, FSIS, which is Food Safety Inspection Service, which is an arm of the USDA. It's in charge of red meat, beef, and, and pork, and is also in charge of chicken. Uh, the FDA does essentially everything else, including fish, except for catfish. The USDA FSIS oversees catfish, and God knows why that is. You know, there's uh, turf battles, who's investigating what, and when you sort of overlay that, with neither of those agencies presently have the ability to go on to cattle feedlots to investigate outbreaks of human illness, it really becomes a nightmare to stop these sorts of outbreaks. Um, let's shift our focus to salmonella, which causes 1.35 million illnesses, 26,500 hospitalizations, and 420 deaths every year, according to the CDC. Four companies, Tyson, Purdue, Pilgrims, and Sanderson Farms, control the chicken market, and there are only two primary breeders. And yet not until the bird gets to the slaughterhouse does the USDA have jurisdiction. Has salmonella been declared an adulterant so that there is some sort of consequence to these producers? No, the reality is, and this is something that I think your listeners and most consumers have absolutely no idea of, is is that a a producer of chicken, just like the meat suppliers in the -the jack-in-the-box day, can knowingly sell you chicken contaminated with salmonella, uh, and they just walk away scot-free. And, you know, if you take a step back, you know, people need to understand that, you know, we as consumers need to be responsible for, you know, our part of food safety. Um, but most consumers don't realize how, uh, how deadly salmonella can be and how easy it is to cross-contaminate your kitchen and your kids and your towel and everything when you bring chicken into your kitchen. And the fact that we can't regulate um, where the eggs are grown and where the chickens are raised means that we can't really regulate salmonella because once the bird hits the slaughter facility, it's where USDA's jurisdiction, it's too late to try to stop salmonella. I mean, they're not going to stop salmonella in a slaughterhouse. But, you know, there's a lot of things you can do vaccinating uh, birds, sometimes, you know, eliminating a flock. I mean, do you know how many, you know how many birds we've killed because of bird flu and the worries that are these chickens might get sick and other chickens might get sick? We've killed millions and millions of birds to eradicate bird flu, but we do nothing to try to eradicate salmonella from flocks. Europe does it. 
The EU approaches salmonella completely differently. They labeled it as an adulterant, right? Correct. And also, I was just in London the other day, and uh, they also do things like they go into some of the major grocery stores, the government does, and pulls chicken out of the store and tests it. And if it tests positive for salmonella, they publicize it. You know, grocery stores don't like to be known as the grocery store with salmonella-tainted chicken. So then they put pressure on their suppliers to clean it up. This all comes down to lobbying, right? Comes down to lobbying, uh, comes down to, I would also say sort of, um, you know, a the idyllic uh, viewpoint of Americans that we have towards farms and farmers uh, that is sort of ingrained in our heads that don't exist anymore except on a very, very local level. You know, the farms of, you know, our grandparents and great-grandparents have long disappeared into, you know, these mega firms that will, you know, grow and kill, you know, millions and millions of chickens a week and um, have incredible power over politicians uh, and, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency and others. What kind of power? Is it money? It's it's complex. It's a part, uh, it's money, but part is, you know, a sort of a romantic view of farms. I mean, I can't tell you how many times after a foodborne illness outbreak, you know, you'll have a politician, you know, going to eat at a restaurant or at a, or eat a product that has been the product that has caused illnesses and deaths. There's just a sort of desire uh, on the part of politicians and regulators to sort of bend over backwards for farm type businesses. I mean, and you see it even when regulation happens. Um, you know, the water rule under the Food Safety Modernization Act was delayed and delayed and delayed because of lobbying by various, you know, industries that rely on public water supplies, irrigation canals. But they, you know, didn't want to deal with the fact that many of these irrigation canals have become contaminated with runoff from cattle feed operations. Yeah, I mean, the push and pull we have in this society between consumer protection, risk, corporate drive for profit, and fear of regulation is really a potent mix. It can be, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why I was really pleased in the movie that, you know, we put E. coli as an adulterant front and center to show consumers and to show businesses and to show politicians that these problems are not completely insoluble. You can get these things fixed. I mean, the same arguments that the beef industry had for why the world was going to collapse if you made E. coli an adulterant are the same arguments that you hear when it comes to salmonella and chicken or dealing with water contamination in irrigation. You can't fix this problem because it'll drive us out of business. It'll, you know, food will cost, you know, way too much. And, you know, hamburger is less expensive, even adjusted for inflation, less expensive today than it was 30 years ago. Um, When you go out to a restaurant and you order a burger, what do you do to protect yourself? 
Well, I, I do order burgers now. Uh, for probably 25 years, I never did. And so my children, you know, were disallowed from having hamburgers. And instead of sneaking off to get a beer, I think sometimes when they were teenagers, they snuck off and got hamburgers. But, you know, I tend to order things that are cooked. I probably won't order a salad out to dinner. I'll order, you know, Brussels sprouts or cooked spinach. Uh, people can be a little bit more proactive in, you know, being safe. Um, you know, f- like, for example, you know, fresh cut fruits and vegetables. You know, we all should be eating those. Absolutely. But buy an apple, wash it yourself and cut it yourself and eat it that day or the next day. You know, don't buy pre-cut fruits and vegetables in the deli section and take them home and then have them sit around for, you know, a week. That's a, you know, a recipe for disaster. Thank you so much for being such a marvelous resource on this subject. Um, Your voice in in the Netflix film was very appreciated. Yeah, thank you. It, It was a little emotional at times and sometimes I feel like I haven't done enough, but, you know, I just keep trying. That was attorney Bill Marler. He's been fighting for food safety for over 30 years. His work is showcased in the Netflix documentary Poisoned, The Dirty Truth About Your Food. In a minute, pupusas, cocteles de conchas, and a bowl of iguana soup. We head to the El Salvador corridor when Good Food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. The country of El Salvador is divided into 14 departamentos, but you can find Departamento 15 more than 3,000 miles away. It's LA's El Salvador Corridor, a 14-block strip that runs along Vermont Avenue from West 11th Street down to Adams. And for many years, the heart of the neighborhood was El Mercado Salvadoreño, the lively street vending area between 11th Street and Pico Boulevard. Then in May 2022, city officials swept through and shut down street vending in the area. But they're back. And food writer Bill Esparza surveyed the best papusas, antojitos, cocteles, and more for Eater LA. Hi, Bill. Hello, Evan. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm excited to talk about El Salvador. Me too. Okay, let's get into the food. Let's start with the cocktail de conchas. Cocktail de conchas is the hot item out there. There are probably, I don't know, a dozen stands, but their favorite seafood dish is this cocktail made with blood clams, and they're actually brought in from Ensenada. And they're they're made simply with tomatoes, purple onions, cilantro, and their favorite sauce, salsa perrines, which you and I know as Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> Love that. Which is really, oh, that's that's a big flavor, the salsa perrines, lay in parents. And so, yeah, it's served in a bowl. I mean, it could be whatever size you want. And they also have really nice oysters. I don't know if you would eat oysters in the sun on Vermont Boulevard, but I sure did, and they're amazing. <laughs> Then there's the entire category of antojitos. What does that uh, term include? And share what your favorite antojitos at El Mercado Salvadoreño are. Well, in all Latin American cultures, especially when we're talking about Central America and, and Mexico, the antojitos are the quintessential street foods and traditions that represent the national culture. So these are 
really the dishes that defined uh, comida salvadoreña. In this case, pupusas, that's our favorite dish. But, you know, besides being the popular dish that we all know, it's also a national dish of El Salvador. And yuca con chicharrón, which is fried yuca and pork crackling together, covered in curtido, pickled cabbage, and a tomato sauce, which is kind of the common dressing on most Salvadoran antojitos. And then they have riguas, which I really love. These are just corn cakes that are served with uh, cream. And one of my favorite dishes that I'm fascinated by these days are enredos de yuca, which are grated yuca that are deep fried into these kind of torpedo-shaped strands that really look interesting. And, and of course, they're covered in cortido and tomato sauce. Yum. Tell us about Sandra Yanira, one of the stars of the market. What does she make? She specializes in antojitos, of course. You can find really good uh, yuca con chicharrón there, pasteles, which are like empanadas filled with chicken. And then empanadas, what they call empanadas, are these little balls of plantain stuffed with beans and cheese. Empanada de frijol. But she also has iguana soup, which is called garrobo. You know, most of the stands kind of have a little bit of everything, but if you just want like a really good antojito, any of the, of the dishes we've already talked about, she's the person to go to, and, and she's also a big TikTok star. Tell us about elotes locos. Elotes locos are indeed loco. It's kind of like a sizzler dinner plate on a stick. Because they... <laughs> It tastes like an old steakhouse, you know. It's corn covered in butter, of course, slathered in butter, and then cheese. But then, then it like really departs from the Mexican uh, version. It has mustard, ketchup, and salsa perrins, Worcestershire <laughs> sauce. That and is that local. combo just... And, and you're probably thinking, that sounds kind of weird. But when you taste it, it really tastes like a steakhouse. Wow. That's really amazing. Do you have a favorite torta? Or a favorite pane in the market? Yes. You know, it's kind of funny. A lot of the stands don't really have official names. They just call themselves like delicious sandwiches or natural juices. So, Deliciosas Tortas Estilo Hula Hula is my favorite stand. And there, they do Tortas Hula Hula, which is named after the Plaza Hula Hula in San Salvador. So these, these tortas are known as tortas mexicanas. They have nothing to do with Mexico, but they're long rolls and they're filled with uh, ground meat and, you know, avocado and curtido, a different kind of curtido that they, you know, than the one that you see on the, on, with pupusas. And it's just a great sandwich. And they have another one called mataninos, which is a mortadella sandwich on a different, like a skinny roll. But they're really amazing. And uh, I mean, I think one of the best sandwiches you can have in town. I understand that there are also soups. What kind uh, can we expect to see? And are any a, a must try? Yes. Everybody in the Latino community knows that Central America is really good at soups. Sopa de gallina india, which is uh, like a, a, a ranch hen. They make the stock and they have lots of vegetables in it. And then they take the hen out and then they put it on the grill and they smoke it a bit and then it's served on the side. So gallina india is really popular. 
sopa de pata, which is uh, beef foot. They have a seafood soup called sopa de mariscada, which is a mixed seafood soup that sometimes has cream in it. And I think the most exciting, though, is the mondongo, which is like their version of menudo. But it's more of a soup. It's got a more clear stock, and it's really delicious tripe soup. But the garrobo, which is their word for iguana, there's all kinds of iguana soups. There's consomme, garrobo en alhuaste, which is a pumpkin seed stew. This is very similar to the Mexican style pipián. And I think that's my favorite, the garrobo en alhuaste. Now, what about minutas? I understand that they're a Salvadoran-style shaved ice treat. So minutas is their name for what in the Mexican culture we call raspados. What I think the big difference is there's a lot more fruit. So you're, you're getting passion fruit and nance, which is like in between an olive and a cherry. It's a ye- little yellow fruit. Of course, they have tamarind and guava. A lot of these things are, are, are mixes, blends of fruits. So you can get tamarind with guayaba, strawberry with coconut, and they even have a piña colada. They're really delicious. And honestly, I think they're my favorite version of this in Los Angeles, even over raspados. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Evan. And we'll, we'll see you down there. Let's go have some iguana. Sounds great. That was writer Bill Esparza describing the delicious eats you'll find at El Mercado Salvadoreño, located at the corner of Vermont Avenue and 11th Street. For a link to his Eater LA story about the food of Los Angeles's El Salvador corridor, and for some tips on what you should know before you go, head to kcrw.com slash goodfood. The Market Report is on deck, and it's a fun one. Stay close. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Let's head to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market to learn about an exciting collaboration between local farmers, butchers, and chefs. Our correspondent, Jillian Ferguson, has the story. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. We've talked about the Tehachapi Grain Project and their corn tortillas here on the Market Report in the past, but Sherry Mandel, who spearheads the project, also makes flour tortillas with heritage grain grown in Tehachapi. Now she has some exciting new collaborations with local butchers and olive oil producers to create tortillas made with pork lard, beef tallow, and local olive oil. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Jillian. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. So you have three different collaborations in the works. Tell us about them. Okay. We are doing olive oil tortillas with Flamingo Estates using their olive oil and also all time. They're using an organic olive oil to make their Sonora tortillas as well as McCall's. We're using a beef tallow, which we're still perfecting trying to get the proportions for the fat and water ratios just right before we put that out on market. And lastly, we have a collaboration with Standings Butchery using their pork lard, and we are selling that at Standings and also to Atla. Amazing. So what was the fat that you were using before, and what was the learning curve in in bringing in these new ingredients? Well, we're using vegetable oil, and people are moving away from vegetable oil. We love it in the tortilla. The tortilla is really supple and beautiful, and it's still a really great tortilla, but people are wanting to move towards other fats, like butter. We might even try that. 
Also, duck fat could be in the works. It's really so much fun to uh, taste the different flavors, taste how the different fat contents work with the Sonora. Um, Some of them are super flaky, some of them are velvety, um, but all of them are delicious. And remind us who your partner is who's actually making the tortillas for you. La Gloria. We love La Gloria. They're third, well now fourth generation tortilla maker in LA. And that's um, some of the fun really about doing these mashups, these collaborations, is that we kind of are updating like a modern version of making something with everyone in the city, you know? So when when you go to Italy or when you go to another country, you're kind of tasting what's there. And so this one little tortilla is giving you an opportunity to taste the fat from local farmers that is rendered by a local butcher that is mixed with flour from a local farmer that is made by a local artisan into a tortilla and sold at your local favorite place. So it's just so nice to be able to collaborate with things that are right here and share it with the community. So if people want to get their hands on these tortillas after hearing this, I know it's a little tricky. Can we buy them from you? You can buy them from me. You have to get here early on Wednesday. Um, Some people also DM me through Instagram and ask if I will hold some aside. It does get tricky, especially, you know, the blue corn and the, the lard tortillas we make in small batches. I think the best thing to do is just go to Standing Butchery, go to McCall's, go to these places that sell them, Canyon Gourmet, Juice to Grocer, and eat at places like All Time and eat at places like Atla that are supporting local farmers, local makers, and really have the experience the way it's meant to be. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you for having me. That was Sherry Mandel, the fairy grain mother of the farmer's market. She supplies countless chefs and home cooks with heritage grain, flour, and tortillas. Marisol Corona is the chef at the newly opened Atla in Venice, where you can find these pork lard tortillas that we've been talking about. Welcome to L.A., Marisol. Thank you. So Atla is a part of Enrique Olvera's restaurant group, which is so well known for masa and corn tortillas. What made you decide to incorporate flour tortillas on the menu in Venice? In general, we like to showcase heirloom corn and products that are also available from the community and that are local to everybody and showcasing the heirloom grains and flour tortillas. So it was a great idea for us because we really appreciate the flavor of it. As we take pride for our corn, we also appreciate uh, other people showcasing what they have and their products. So it was it was just a no-brainer for us, and it goes great with our suadero taco. So how do you decide what gets a flour tortilla and what gets a corn tortilla? Well, we wanted to do something different that it was from New York, um, and we thought our our most favorite taco that we sell in New York is also the suadero taco, but it comes in a corn tortilla. And we wanted to do something that was also approachable and common for people and that they would relate to. So the suadero taco, which is just brisket and very short rib, goes great with the flour tortillas. The nuttiness, the fattiness, it 
pairs really well. Can you walk us through the whole dish? Like, what's the salsa that comes with that? It is a raw salsa cruda. It's a tomatillo base with onion, serranos, cilantro, and avocado, just to kind of emulsify that so it gives that brightness to it. And it cuts through the fat a little bit and mm. highlights the, the rest of the, the meat and, and the flour tortilla. And if listeners are able to get their hands on some of these tortillas, either here at the market or from standings, what are the best practices for using them at home? Should we put them in the refrigerator, leave them on the counter? If you're going to eat them right away, uh, definitely you can leave them on the counter and you can cook them right away. Um, But if you want them to last a little longer, I highly recommend to refrigerate them. Just before you are ready to use them, uh, take them out at least 30 minutes or an hour, just kind of like how you're cutting a cake. It's the same idea. You're using flour, so you want all of the layers to kind of settle and get up to room temperature, and that way it also heat up much faster and easier, and they won't stick together. Love that. Thank you, Marisol. You're welcome. (laughs) That was Marisol Corona. She's the executive chef at Atla, both in New York and here in Venice on Abbott Kenny. They're open for dinner Wednesday through Sunday and brunch on the weekends. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Lero Garcia, and Lena Shatkin, and to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And of course, a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Messiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. If you're carving a pumpkin this weekend, remember to save those seeds. I prefer them simply roasted and salted. They make an excellent snack, but I'm told a sweet riff with cinnamon and sugar is delicious too. I'll be back next week with an all new episode of Good Food.